Hi, I'm Victoria Starek Samolin, co-founder and director of strategy at the Council on Geostrategy, a new foreign affairs think tank based in the heart of London. And this is Geostrategy 360, our fortnightly podcast, which discusses current geopolitical and environmental security issues with politicians, government and military officials, business people, and experts. The recent dramatic developments in Afghanistan over the past couple of weeks and days, with the Taliban overtaking Kabul with no resistance, have put the country back in the spotlight. It was always inevitable that the UK and the US would leave Afghanistan, but it was never inevitable that the Americans would simply cut and run, handing victory to the Taliban on a plate. But so ended the Allied intervention in Afghanistan, with the Taliban back in charge as it had been prior to the attempted liberation of the country by American and British forces starting back in October 2001. And today I'm absolutely delighted to have with me our Thomas Lawrence Associate Fellow, Professor Gareth Stansfield, who is one of the best experts in the Middle East and Gulf politics, British foreign policy and counterterrorism and counterinsurgency in the UK. He is Professor of Middle East Politics and the Al-Kazimi Chair of Arab Gulf Studies in the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies at the University of Exeter. With 25 years experience of field-based research in countries of the Middle East, he was part of British Horizon Scanning Initiatives on Iraq and Libya with the Ministry of Defense and has also previously held roles at Chatham House, the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. and the Royal United Services Institute. Professor Gareth Stansfield, welcome to Geostrategy 360. Hello, Victoria. Thank you for having me. So we know that the withdrawal from Afghanistan was inevitable at some point. We've been talking about it for years and had a lot of time to prepare. Looking at the developments we've seen in the recent days and the speed of them, we can agree that the way how it is being carried out is undoubtedly symbolic and rather tragic. What went wrong? What went wrong? Well, I I think the the first thing that we have to consider is whether it should have been considered inevitable that we were to leave Afghanistan. And I I think we need to put it within the context of um, the the US presence in in South Korea, um, the the extended presence of um, the US and and her allies in Germany and Japan as well. When we engage in significant, um, comprehensive um, state building, state reconstruction efforts, or stabilization, peacekeeping efforts that are very significant, such as in Korea, these are seen as extremely long, open-ended missions. Um, and perhaps um, Afghanistan should have been seen from the beginning in that sort of way. Um, we set um, very early on um, Afghanistan as a nation-building, state-building enterprise and, initi- and, and initiative without really fully understanding um, the complexities, the peculiarities, the specificities of um, Afghanistan as a country, as a polity, as a, as a grouping of different peoples and the internal dynamics. Now, of course, there were plenty of experts and academics around who had a lot of field experience um, in Afghanistan before the Taliban and during the Taliban time as well. Um, but there has been a the increasingly since the early 2000s, a, a lessening of the ability of those experts and also of um, military officers, policy advisors, um, general observers to influence policy going forward. So I think there has been a, a collective failure um, in Western 
um, Western policy making circles, including of those people who sit around and advise um, policymakers about the complexities of Afghanistan and where um, where the trajectories for um, our, for Western initiatives were actually going, and where those trajectories would go if the military presence was withdrawn. So I think that this is a very complicated situation that has deep roots back into our earliest conceptualization as to what we were going to try and do in Afghanistan, how we would do it, and how long it would take. So let's get back now to the early 2000s. In his speech earlier this week, President Biden addressing the nation stressed that the purpose behind the US intervention in Afghanistan had always been preventing a terrorist attack on American homeland rather than um, creating a unified, centralized democracy in Afghanistan. Was it really the case? What was the UK's purpose? Well, well this, the, 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 the case changed quite often. So at the, the, the earliest iteration was that, that Afghanistan would, that, that no longer would international terrorist groups be able to base themselves from Afghan territory um, to attack the US and, and, and other Western countries. Um, that, had, that did move into a state-building, nation-building type initiative. Um, it moved into counterinsurgency as well. So we saw the, um, the, the, the model used in Iraq to what was seen at the time as successfully putting down the Al-Qaeda insurgency in Iraq um, through the surge strategy being brought to Afghanistan in 2010 by General David Petraeus and pretty much sort of used as a blueprint for how you do counterinsurgency and, and engage in state building as well going forward without really understanding the differences, the very, very significant differences between Iraq and Afghanistan and arguably didn't actually work in Iraq either as we're tending to see these days too. So the again, the the for, for there to be a successful strategy, there has to be a sort of coherent vision as to what is to be achieved. But different presidents nuanced that vision. They changed it sometimes. They focused on different elements. And the, 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 the military establishment, the policy community, um, and again, the, the circles around them tended to, to change their approach according to what they thought the policy direction was. So in effect, the US and her allies became really quite confused about what they were trying to do in Afghanistan, uh, what success meant. And success began to mean different things to different groups. For for the highest levels of policymakers, it, it was a grand sort of stable Afghanistan. Gradually, it became something that were um, um, that would see a, um, a secure Afghan government, uh, a capable military force. Um, Obama moved away from wanting the massive, def- the, the overwhelming defeat of the um, of the Taliban to being something that be, could, could be contained. So this was something that was um, changeable all the time. And Western policy really began to be very, very badly affected by this. We are now focusing on uh, making sure that we evacuate from Afghanistan our nationals, as well as those who assisted us in fighting the Taliban over all these years, as well as also putting in place um, uh, some plans and provisional plans for humanitarian aid and adjusting our refugees' policies. We are also waiting to see what the next couple of weeks will bring and how the modern Taliban regime will look like. 
what our key focus areas should be now, what should we prioritize both as a country and as an important member of the international community? Well, our priorities in some ways don't change, that we need to see Afghanistan um, not being used as a focal point, as a, a base for international terrorist groups. And many of these groups are still there. Al-Qaeda is still around. Islamic State has a presence. And there are other networks and organisations as well. I, I heard a report that there are perhaps as many as 10,000 foreign fighters in Afghanistan right now, which is highly significant. And foreign fighters of a jihadist orientation will be looking at um, new places to base themselves from, perhaps as uh, the situation in Syria becomes more difficult for them to operate from. Of course, it's more difficult in Iraq for them as well now. So again, Afghanistan becomes prime real estate, uh, relatively um, isolated, um, without an American presence there now, um, and really, uh, and, and potentially with a regime that, that can at least turn a blind eye to them. So there needs to be some serious thinking being given to, to this priority about how to how to deal with this. Um, but this is now done in a setting where the Taliban regime actually has friends, or at least has um, partners that they can engage with in the international community that have real influence and power. And we see that particularly with China and Russia, who haven't withdrawn their, their, ambassador, their embassies and their ambassadors. Um, with the Russian um, ambassador meeting the Taliban representative of the Taliban government recently. Um, and this, of course, will have ramifications for how the Security Council can act towards Afghanistan as well. And then, of course, there are other countries who will who will work and deal openly with the Taliban. Uh, Pakistan has always been close uh, and involved, uh, perhaps more accurately, with the, with the Taliban regime, and that will not change. Um, we will see um, Iran working and, and finding a way to work with, with the Taliban going forward, even though they are two uh, opposite ends of the, the spectrum of, of, um, of, of, of religious orientation within, within Islam. Uh, but still, the geopolitical realities will, will make them work together. And so there are many countries here who will be working with them. And what Western powers now have to try and think is how do they actually deal with this very, very, um, very, very much transformed situation where the Taliban regime will not be seen as a regime by many governments of the world. They will be seen as a legitimate government of Afghanistan. Um, and trying to work a counter-terrorism um, project into that is going to be is going to require creative thinking. Um, it, it would seem to me unwise, even though it is unpalatable as well, uh, well to consider, um, that the UK does need to find a way of talking to the Taliban and, wrecking, and, and working with it uh, as the, the current government of, of Afghanistan, if only to, to start to build uh, this counter-terrorism agenda. Now, there are various ways that this can be done. In the Taliban regime, will need um, foreign investment. It will need international aid. Um, it will be requiring. It will be seeking legit, uh, legitimacy to be granted by Western European powers, um, just to show that it is different again. Um, now, these are difficult things to, to consider, but perhaps they are things that need to be put on the table if we are to develop a, a proper, uh, a strong counter-terrorism initiative 
that really does manage to to limit the space and opportunity for groups out there that would seek to cause our societies harm. But this is highly unpalatable. I mean, we've gone through 20 years of demonizing Taliban for good reason. Um, um, there, there is little evidence right now to suggest their record towards the treatment of women um, has changed. Um, there is little record to suggest that they are going to be more liberal in their interpretation of the Sharia. Um, and, and, um, and so to expect Western governments to embrace this sort of regime is extremely difficult. But right now, there are no easy options here. If what we want to do is to maintain a focus on counterterrorism, a prevention of attacks, as we saw in 2001 and, and, and subsequent years, then, then we have to um, we have to start looking at some deeply unpassable um, possibilities um, that do require engagement and discussion with partners that were once very much our enemies. So this crisis will undoubtedly will have implications on both our national security and also geostrategic balance in the years, if not decades, to come. So what effect do you think will it have on our national security situation and how we should manage this risk? Yeah, so on national security, of course, it, it, it is focused particularly on counterterrorism. And the UK has become um, adept at managing its national security vis-a-vis counterterrorism um, and particularly from the threats posed by transnational Islamic jihadism. Um, so we, we, we have the tools, the, 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 the methods to deal with this. Um, the problem that we now face, though, is the potential reopening of um, territory to international groups that can then use these places as, as, as basis to train, to recoup, to, to, to develop their capabilities. And so we need to think very carefully about how that is managed. Um, now, our security services and and, um, and organisations that have been involved in this have developed um, considerable skills in dealing with it, but they do require international networking. They do require a very um, focused intelligence capability. Uh, it does require working closely with countries such as Pakistan um, to make sure that, that this is adequately managed. Um, but, and this has become immeasurably much harder now that the Afghan space has been effectively closed down in terms of intelligence gathering in that sort of way. Um, but it, it's, again, the, again there, are, there are no easy answers to this beyond doing what we do extremely well um, already and trying to find a way to work with those partners who are close to the Taliban, perhaps even working with the Taliban themselves to ensure that they it's not in their interests um, to, to allow Afghanistan to become a focal point for international terrorist organizations. We have to recognize, though, that we have let go of, well, we, many of the levers that we had to pull um, before the American withdrawal are simply no longer there. And that includes um, the, the, ability, the, the level of the ability that we have to work with international partners to engineer these sorts of um, um, uh, uh, processes that, that we would need. Um, other countries have moved into this space, and I've mentioned China and Russia. Uh, Pakistan is there too. Um, 
And we have to understand what, what are their interests now for working with us very closely in order to achieve these aims that are, that are our national interests rather than theirs necessarily. Um, the, you know, the center of gravity of, of, of how we can work in Afghanistan has changed considerably. And that is a, that is a, a, a very great worry. So many in the UK currently look at the situation and the tragic and chaotic scenes and understand that there's not much we can do by ourselves as a country and as an important member of the international community, as you rightly pointed out. Um, Donald Trump came up with that idea of America first. But the recent speech by President Biden, rather than reassuring allies and partners that America is back, just as he claimed before entering office, paints a slightly different picture more like America first again. And from what we've seen over the past days, um, it seems that looking ahead, we need to start thinking about how we might have to operate without the United States when its interests are not aligned with ours. We cannot lead by ourselves alone, of course, but do we need to start thinking about building new coalitions with other middle powers, for example, to be able to step up if the future crisis, and of course they will arise, arise? Mm. Yes, we're we're getting into a whole new world of security security architecture for the UK, and it's not only that we see um, America, and you know Biden has followed an America first plan. I mean, and in some ways he's been true to what he's always said about Afghanistan. He's never been a fan of US presence there, but he's basically ran with the policy of Trump, or he had to run with it. Really, I mean, by then it was so far down the line, but. But um, there was still an opportunity for him to wind back, and he didn't. He he went full ahead with it. Um, and at the same time, we have Brexit, and we have the, the more difficult relationships of the British with, with European powers, even though they're, they're still there. So so this is a, a different sort of world for us to now consider. And I think the point you make about building other middle power alliances is, is absolutely um, critical, that we have to start um, looking at partners in the region and who are involved there, perhaps in ways that we hadn't done before, um, working more closely with, with Middle Eastern countries, with Gulf countries who have very strong interests in Afghanistan. Um, even though we've seen the, the Saudi embassy um, um, withdrawn from, from Afghanistan, I'd expect that it would return sometime soon. Um, it's for good reason that the discussions between the Americans and, and the Taliban were going on in Doha in Qatar. Um, so we have to start understanding how we can work with partners uh, in, in that region uh, to engage with Afghanistan more effectively. Um, maybe even Turkey. I mean, Turkey's geopolitical aspirations would tend to suggest that they are going to develop, um, that, that it's in their interest, perhaps, to, to develop links with the new government in, in Afghanistan um, as well. And, you know, our, our relationship with Turkey over the last few years has not been um, as strong as it has been in the past. So perhaps there is some looking at, at that relationship as well. And, of course, with Pakistan, um, with pretty much all of these countries, maybe apart from the, the Arab Gulf states, we have tended to to look at our relationships in military terms with them through the, the the prism of NATO with Turkey or in our relationship with the Americans with regard to Pakistan. And perhaps it's now time for us to start doing this a little bit differently, that we have to start working a Britain first um, secure the uh, defence policy in a way that the Americans are choosing to do with theirs. 
and perhaps being a little bit more open to working with international partners other than the Americans uh, in a in a primary way than we have been in the past. This is not easy, though. Our um, defence, uh, our foreign policy establishment, and the way that we work as a as a country in this in these sectors is very very inter intertwined and interlinked with the Americans. Um, these are ties that bind that go back decades. And to to it's one thing to say, well, we should perhaps have a more independent or uh, or a diversified approach to defence and foreign foreign policy making. Um, it sounds it sounds sensible, um, but it's quite another to manage how that is going to be achieved um, in many different realms, technologically, certainly, in intelligence sharing, of course, but also culturally. Our defence and policy-making culture is one that is intimately connected with the US. And to change that going forward is, is perhaps generational rather than an immediate shift. But we're in a world right now where the shifts are happening extremely quickly. Um, and perhaps these different ways of thinking need to happen um, at pace rather than waiting for cultures to change over generations. So we can potentially say that victory over Taliban is redrawing the map in Central Asia. And it also potentially uh, creates a new great game of the 21st century there. It looks like Russia and China, as you rightly pointed out earlier, already established relationship with the Taliban. And after this frantic withdrawal and the unfortunate outcome, we now risk being left behind by our rivals in the region. And also the events of the recent days will undoubtedly damage our reputation in the eyes of the global community. So what can we do to minimize the damage on both fronts? I keep starting my answers with this is a very difficult question and this is perhaps the most difficult of them really. Um, Western powers in particular the US and you know by association the UK to a degree have, have been weakened by this. Um, we um we have we we have been we, we are seen on the international setting as, as losing the war to the Taliban whether we have de- defining loss and winning in this is difficult but that's in general how it is seen and, and not only that um but um a disorderly shameful evacuation and with the scenes that we see at Kabul airport um and and everything that happened there illustrating to countries that perhaps would have um, wanted to work closely with Western powers um, in in terms of democratic transitions and and, um, transformations, perhaps being far more wary about that in the future, thinking that um, uh, now having the the, the belief that perhaps Western promises are not really promises, there are hopes and aspirations that could change. Um, and that could be particularly the case if we, um, if you look at what happens in Iraq and the changes there, uh, if we look at what happens in in Syria and the the, the attempts to remove Assad and then the the the, the failure to do so, um, and that is compared then to how Russia has operated in Syria, that has always been there for Assad, um, and um, uh, and whether and just whether countries such as Russia and China are more reliable allies and partners going forward. Um, And I think this is a problem that perhaps Western 
um, democracies have to confront, that our ability to generate um, strategic plans that, that manage to survive and are coherent beyond and through our electoral cycles um, is fundamentally weakening our, our ability to actually um, achieve what we want on the world stage going forward when other countries have don't have those cycles necessarily, or they do have those cycles, but they can ignore them um, and can have a much more coherent, longer longer, um, longer duration foreign policy and security policy to follow through. Um, interestingly, the Taliban also did that as well. They outlasted Western strategic thinking um, because they had their plan from the early 2000s to reintroduce the Islamic Caliphate, and they've just kept on plugging away at that through different ways, and they've got there in the end. Um, so th- there is something, again, um, structural within the way Western governments and societies think in terms of strategy and achieving strategy that perhaps needs to, I don't know where, I don't know where the thinking for this change actually starts and how it gets traction to actually make change, but, but this has now become quite critical. Um, in terms of how this gets immediately managed, I think there needs to be some calm thinking and even calmer, calmer speaking <clears throat> when it comes to um, Britain's engagement in the Security Council and the United Nations, the statements that we put out as well. I mean, it, it would be difficult and very unpalatable to, to hear um, a British Prime Minister um, having to openly reach out to the Taliban regime. I don't think that... Um, would happen, and I think it would be problematic if it were to happen without some pretty serious guarantees about human rights, women's rights, um, political development from from that regime coming forward first. Um, but I think perhaps that there does need to be some concerted effort to um, seek engagement with partners that have traction with the Taliban um, uh, to, to try and ensure that some of these things are put into place. Um, but again, this is, as I've said before, we've, a lot of the levers that we had to pull, um, have been, have been removed. And so we, we are into a, a very difficult world here of, of changed, um, geopolitical dynamics, um, within Afghanistan and, 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 and around Afghanistan but also concerning the countries of the international community that want to engage there going forward for their own aims. Professor Stansfield, thank you very much for taking part in today's podcast. And thank you to our listeners. This is GeoStrategy 360, the Council on GeoStrategy podcast, which discusses current geopolitical and environmental security issues with politicians, government and military officials, business people, and experts. You can listen to GeoStrategy 360 on all major podcast platforms, and you can find all our podcasts on our website, www.geostrategy.org.uk slash podcasts.